This morning, uh, we are uh, going to look at Jesus' family tree. But before we do that, we're, we're going to pray. And I'm, I'm going to let you know that as we go through this, uh, maybe, maybe you feel like, hey, I'm not a religious person, or maybe, maybe you feel far from God today. And I think that, I think that when we look at Jesus' family tree, there's going to be some things that you see that you'll be able to relate to, uh, maybe even surprisingly so. But let's, uh, let's pray. And when we do that, it's important to open up our hearts that um, we don't um, – it's kind of like if you go to a gym. You notice that if you went to a gym Monday through Friday for two hours a day and you sat there with all of these other people that are working out, you know, they're on the treadmill and, you know, they're lifting weights, they're doing all these things, but you just sit in the gym – you don't get stronger. Okay? You don't get in better shape by just sitting in the gym and being there. And it's the same way with being at church. It's the same way with, with being in a Christian family. It's, it's that, it's where, where's my heart? And so when we pray, it's, it's exercising that faith, saying, God, speak to me. God, help me to, to hear what you're saying. So, so let's pray. Father, this morning, uh, we want to exercise that faith to pray. And we ask that you would speak to us. We we pray, God, that you would help us to understand your word, that we would know the, this message that Jesus has come to give us, that it's, it's for us. It's not just for others. And then, Lord, we pray that you would remind us that it's not just for us, it's for others. And uh, so, so, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that Jesus came. And, Lord, we pray that we would understand what that means. And, Father, I pray if there's anyone here today that is not a part of that family tree, that today... Lord, would be the day of adoption, that today would be that day where they say, Lord, I want to be a part of, of this family. And so we thank you, and we pray that you'd bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, we're looking at this genealogy, this family tree of Jesus. And I'll tell you, I, I really love this season. Uh, Deanna and I, we got a chance to get away, and, and um we have a, a friend that is the manager of the Carmel Valley Inn. So we went to Carmel Valley, and, and uh, we got to stay there for free. And I just recommend go there. It's, it's, a, great, it's a great place. It won't be free for you, but you'll love it. It'll be, it'll be amazing. But on our GPS, we looked at it, and we have a friend. Uh, their family, they moved, and uh, they were a part of the church over in Gilroy. And so we hadn't seen them in a while because they've been so busy. And we looked on our GPS, and we were 0.8 miles away. So we called them up, and we... We uh, hung out with them, and we had a great time. And my daughter, Rebecca, she's uh, home for Christmas, so uh, that's a blessing for her to be with us. She's going to be with us for a couple of weeks before she takes off uh, to Spain to study next semester. And so with this season, it's, it's wonderful. My, my favorite thing about Christmas is, is really uh, the blessing of being a, a believer, understanding what Jesus has come for, but also being able to celebrate that with family. And being together with them, and, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, and this morning as church, as a church family, as, uh, as Bill prayed as well, just being together, um, it's a special thing. And we were blessed to be here. We feel um, home. And yet, in Christmas, there are times when, when people go through depression. You know, we were showing that video, and, and there's, there's difficulties that come too. Because sometimes there's this pressure to make it the perfect holiday. Um, all the commercials that come out during this season, I, I think that every Christmas is supposed to have a Lexus with a bow and a puppy that comes out of a package and a diamond ring for an engagement, right? And that happens every Christmas, supposedly. And yet, sometimes we go through this and it's a tough time. 
sometimes we go through Christmas season and, and we look at it and, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of hurt and a lot of difficulty and a lot of pain. And so this morning, we don't want to over, uh, be overly sentimental about Christmas, but we don't want to make the mistake of just thinking it's just another religious holiday or it's just a day of festivity and lights and packages and, and singing. No, there's something that God did that we celebrate. And so this morning, if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. And as we read about this, we're going to look at Jesus' family tree. You can't really be neutral about him um, because we realize who he is. And it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So this morning, God is not only the creator of the universe, but he chooses to reveal himself to us with family relationship. We realize when we open up the scripture that God is father. One of the ways that we could pray to God is we could call him Abba, which is a a term of endearment, not just father, but daddy. It's a a relationship implied in that. And and so we, we look at this as sons and daughters and the Bible says that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, that through the relationship that we have with Jesus, we enter into a family that is much bigger than our physical family. But it's important to realize this, that in every family this side of heaven, there's going to be some dysfunction. So this Christmas, maybe you're experiencing a little bit of dysfunction. There might be a get-together that you get together with family members that they don't talk to each other during the year. And they're eating dinner and they're in the same place, but during the year, there's no relationship. There could be a time that during Christmas, family doesn't get together because of things that have happened and and hurt and unforgiveness. And and so maybe it's a time of separation and, and a holiday like this kind of magnifies that separation. So when we realize this, that when we open up the book of Matthew this morning, The gospel of Matthew, the good news, it comes to us after 400 years of silence when the pen was lifted. From Malachi to Matthew, this 400 years where there's no scripture being being written. And during this season, during this time, the author Matthew, who's known as Levi, was a a former tax collector before he became a follower of Jesus and one of his disciples. He's the perfect author because his background is messed up. Uh, Matthew was a tax collector in which they would come and they would knock at your door and they would say, okay, this is how much you owe. And the Roman government gave him this authority, so he collected taxes, but he could charge you whatever he wanted to charge. Uh, Imagine IRS agents today coming door to door and their salary is their commission. Oh, your taxes, it's really high this year and, and this is what it is. And whatever the Roman government would require, he would be able to skim off the top. So he was despised. And the book of Matthew was written, written primarily to whom? Does anyone know? It was written to the Jews. A very religious, very faith-filled community that, that in a sense had a lot of pride in their lineage. They had a lot of pride in their family tree and, and in their background. And, and yes, every family is dysfunctional. And yet sometimes there could be some families that have this sense of self-righteousness because we're a a Christian family or we're raised in the church or we could look down upon other people. And so Matthew writes to them 
And as he writes to them, and, and it's to us as well, we see he begins with the words, the book of the genealogy. Now, the last time that we see this phrase, the book of the genealogy, we, we see this in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. So these genealogies in Scripture, they were, they were really important to show us proof of lineage. They were designated to, to show us what tribe you were from. And they set apart the kingly and the priestly and the messianic line. Now, why is this important this morning? If Jesus could not prove his lineage and what family he was from, he could not prove that he's the Messiah, the promised one, the one that would, that would bridge the gap between God and mankind. And so in AD 70, when Antiochus Epiphanes, when he destroyed the temple and all of the genealogies were burned in the records, from AD 70 until now, no one can come and prove I am the Messiah and I come from the tribe of Judah and I am from the lineage of David. No one can prove that because there's no more genealogical records. So this genealogy, as we start this morning, this family tree of Jesus is really, really important. But in a family tree, I think it's important to understand that the names that are included in this family tree are really significant for us. In fact, if we see in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, what is he called? He's called the son of David. Now, who is David? David was the the great king of Israel. Uh, We know David by David and what? Who's the other guy? Goliath. Okay, even if you don't know the Bible, you know, David and Goliath. Um, I used to watch that, that little animation, you know, the claymation, David and Goliath, and I used, I used to love watching that. Uh, gee, Davy, you know, and I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's, it's a great cartoon. But even people that don't know the Bible, they understand David and Goliath. And football games, they, they say, well, it's a, it's a story of David versus Goliath because there's a team that should lose and a team that should win. And yet, with David, as, as incredible as he was, the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. There's another name that we associate with David also. And what name is that? It's Bathsheba. It's the one that David committed adultery with. And so what we see is that in this family tree of Jesus, you're going to find out that, that it's not glamorized. It's not, um, it's not this thing of Jesus' family tree. They all glowed. You know, they had halos over their heads and they walked on water. No, David's, I mean, Jesus' family tree, the son of David was the title for the Messiah. And yet we realize that, hey, there were some, there were some really bad things that happened in, in Jesus' lineage. So we see, not only is he called the son of David, another title is the son of Abraham. Now, who is Abraham? Abraham is the father of of faith. He's the father of Israel. Um, Abraham was such a key religious figure that the Jews consider him to be like the father of faith. We as Christians, when we read in Romans, Abraham was the father of faith. And, and, and in Islam, he's considered the father of faith. He was a, a key religious guy, a, a faithful guy. God used him to multiply um, the world and really the beginning of the nation of Israel. And yet, Abraham, this father of faith, we find out, do you remember when he lied about his, his wife? He comes into this new place. He follows God. He goes into this new area. And, and the king there is looking at his wife. 
say, man, she's, she's really beautiful. His wife was gorgeous. And so he tells his wife, hey, do me a favor. Why don't you lie? Just say that you're my sister because if you don't do that, they're going to kill me and then they're going to try to marry you. So, so just say that you're my sister. And he doesn't just do that once. He does it twice. And we see that Abraham, the father of faith, he, he was a sinner just like us. There were times when he had lapses of faith. So as we go through this genealogy, I'm not going to go through every name, but I want to pick out some characters that are going to be really significant for us. In fact, in verse 2, Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Now, Jacob's name is turned into what? Israel. He had 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, one of the sons, his name is Judah. And the Messiah, the Christ, would come from the tribe of Judah. He would be called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, now you would think, if you're going to be from any one of those sons, you'd pick this lineage, probably, this, this background, so that you have this pedigree. And yet, Judah has a really interesting story. In verse 3, you see the first woman that is mentioned in the genealogy. And by the way, the genealogies as they were listed would only list the men. Just the way that they did it in, in these Hebrew genealogies. So this man, and then it would be the next, the next line, it would be the sons, and then those men. And so they're listed by men. And all of a sudden, Matthew, who is writing to a Jew, Jewish audience, he includes a woman. And her name is Tamar. And it says in verse 3, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. And, and so you read that and you think, who is Tamar? Tamar's story is found in Genesis chapter 38. It's not a pretty story at all. In fact, if it were in your family, it would bring a tremendous amount of shame to your family. Maybe you think your family has some shame. There's some background, some baggage, some things you don't want people to know about your family. So what happens with, with Judah is he had three sons. He had Er, he had Onan, and he had Shelah. Now there was a, a law in which if the first son was married and didn't have children, the son died before he had children, the second oldest son would come and marry the wife so that the family lineage would continue and the heir of the firstborn would continue. So what happened was Er died. He was married to Tamar. But then it fell to Onan to marry uh, Tamar. And Onan, his brother, slept with Tamar, but he wouldn't allow her to become pregnant because he knew that the heir would be his. Now God saw this as a wicked thing, and so he slew Onan. And now you think about Judah. Well, my first son was married to her. She died. My second son was married to her. He died. So with the third son, which is the youngest, he tells her, you know what, why don't, why don't we just hold off on this marriage for a little bit? Let my son grow up, you know, let him mature. And when he's of age to be married, then you could go ahead and marry him. So she does this. In this culture, in this society, this time, um, to be a, a single woman was a difficult thing. For income purposes, for safety purposes, and the other thing is that because she was supposed to be married to the youngest son and she's waiting, there was somewhat of a social type of thing where like, hey, aren't you supposed to be married to that guy? He's of marrying age. And yet Judah goes back on his word and doesn't offer 
his youngest son to Tamar. So Tamar, she is, she's been mistreated um, she, very unfairly. And so what she does is she thinks, my life is, is kind of ruined. I have no hope, so I'm going to do something. She dresses up as a prostitute. Judah, her father-in-law, is walking on the way. And so she solicits him, and she, she reaches out to, to Judah. And you know what Judah does is Judah takes her up on it. And Judah solicits her as a prostitute, and, and they, they have relations together. And what ends up happening is she gets pregnant, but she's disguised as a prostitute. So he doesn't know who she is. Now, when they find out, and word comes back to Judah, Tamar's pregnant. What? She's, she's supposed to be married to my youngest son. How dare she? And, and probably thinking, you know, what kind, of a, what kind of a lady is this? And in his wickedness, he says, let's burn her. So this is what Judah does. He says, let's burn her. So they bring her out, and they bring her to Judah. And she says, fine, I understand that you're going to burn me, but before you do that, I want to let you know the man that I'm pregnant by. And, and because he didn't pay her when he was with her, he gave her a signet ring, a staff, and a bracelet. And he gave that as collateral that said, I will come back and I'll bring payment. And the payment was supposed to be some goats, and he didn't have goats with them, so he said he was going to bring it back, and he never did. He thought he was anonymous. He thought he was getting away with it until this day when she said, the baby that is in my womb belongs to the man that owns this signet ring. And the ring is a signature stamp. And this staff and this bracelet. And it was Judah. And you know what Judah says to Tamar? He says to Tamar, you are more righteous than I. This is in Jesus' family tree. It's in Jesus' lineage. And if it's customary not to include the women in the genealogy, in the family tree, in the record, there must be some reason why God on purpose wants us to know that Tamar is a part of that. Because he's teaching us something. He wants us to learn a lesson. He wants us to know some kind of truth. We go on in his family tree. It says in verse 5, it says that Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Now Tamar, she was dressed as a prostitute, but Rahab was a prostitute. This was her occupation, and this was her profession. And as a prostitute, what she did is when you find out that, remember in the book of Joshua, they send these spies into the land. And there are these two spies that come, and then these guys are looking for the spies, and they come to Rahab, and they say, could you hide us? And Rahab says, I, I, I'll hide you. And what she does is she covers them. She hangs outside of her window a, a scarlet thread so that when the Israelites come back in and they fight against the inhabitants of that city, those inside of Rahab's household would be saved. And that scarlet thread becomes something that's a scarlet thread of redemption throughout the Bible. Because it represents something. It represents that it's through the blood of Christ that we are covered. So Rahab, she's included in Jesus' lineage. She marries a man named Salmon. They, be, they have a son named Boaz. And Boaz has a, um, has a daughter um, named Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. Maybe you're thinking, what kind of Christmas message is this? You know, we came when we thought like it was going to be like shepherds and angels. You know, we were, this is Jesus' Christmas message. 
This is what he, he came to teach us. In fact, what he wants us to know about him is that he came by Ruth. And Ruth was a Moabitess. Do you know how the Moabites got started? Do you remember, I talked about Abraham. Abraham had a nephew. His name was Lot. Abraham and Lot, they separated ways. Lot went to one way and Abraham went to another way. Lot stayed in Sodom and Gomorrah. And you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. God rescues Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah with his family. His wife looks back. You know, there's maybe a longing in her heart to be a part of that. And and so she becomes a pillar of salt. And his daughters are thinking, where are we ever going to find a guy here? Where are we ever going to find a man here? So what they do is they get their dad drunk. And what happens is they, they sleep with their dad. And by incest, they begin to start a new group of people called the Moabites. Now, a Moabite couldn't be in the family lineage of Jesus. They, they couldn't be in the family lineage of the Messiah. It's important to know that they were excluded until the 10th generation. Now, why are they included? Why did God see fit to include this? God says, hey, I want to make sure she's in this family tree. And let me share with you. She becomes this incredible woman. If you read about her, you find out that she had a mother-in-law named Naomi. And she tells Naomi something. She says, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. And what happens is she comes into the family tree. How? By faith. We go on to see this in verse 6. Jesse begot David the king, and David begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. So who is this? This is Bathsheba. Now why isn't her name given here? Tamar's name is given. Ruth's name is given. I think that God wants to point something out. She was the legal wife of Uriah, not David. And I think what God wants us to see is he wants us to see that this, this incredible man of God, David, also had sin. In fact, in David's sin, she's called right here the wife of Uriah. Who's Uriah? One of David's mighty men. And he was such a trusted man that David said, here, I want you to give these orders and I want you to take them to the battlefield. David trusted Uriah so much that the battle order said, put Uriah on the front lines and then pull everyone else back. And he trusted Uriah so much to know that Uriah wouldn't even open it up and read it, which tells me something about Uriah's character. And what does David do? He has Uriah murdered, and then he marries his wife, even though David and Bathsheba had already committed adultery, and she was pregnant with David's child. See, that child died, but then later on, there was another child named Solomon. And it says in verse 7, Solomon begot Rehoboam, and Rehoboam got, begot Ab, uh, Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. And so these kings are mentioned, this line of David. And I think it's essential that as we look at these in verse 10, there's another guy that is in this lineage. That It's crazy that he's in here. It says, Hezekiah begot Manasseh, and Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah was a wonderful, godly king. His heart was sensitive towards God. The opposite was true of his grandfather, Manasseh. Manasseh was the most wicked king in all of Israel. You know what Manasseh did? Manasseh was so wicked that he stopped worshiping God. And imagine, imagine a leader not only saying, okay, we're, we're not going to worship God, but we're going to worship these false gods, these other gods that he set up. And in order to worship them, we are going to sacrifice our children 
on the hands of these idols that we are going to heat up and we are going to bring our infants and sacrifice them. That's what Manasseh did. But I want you to know that at the end of Manasseh's life, do you know what he did? He repented. Manasseh repented and he turned towards God. And I really believe that Manasseh, he probably talked a lot to his grandson Josiah and told Josiah, Josiah, I made a lot of mistakes. Josiah, I've I've messed up. I've done some things in my past. And Josiah, don't make the same mistakes. And you know what? As grandparents and as parents, we have such a an influence. I believe that Josiah was sensitive to the things of God, maybe because he heard some of the testimony of his grandfather and the mistakes that his grandfather had made. Maybe you think, man, I, I've messed up. I've made some incredible mistakes in my past. I've done some really stupid things. But know this, that God could take those mistakes and the sin and use them and redeem them. And he could use those things that we have done in order to teach others Hey, aren't you glad that we don't have to learn by experience all the time? We could also learn by someone else saying, hey, I've done that. Now, I know that experience is a great teacher and we learn by experience. You don't have to learn by experience. You could also learn by reading God's word. You could also learn by other people that have made those mistakes. So we have this man named Manasseh, a wicked king. And so as we skip down, I want you to know in verse 16, you're going to see is the turning point in the whole genealogy. It's the turning point in all of Jesus' family tree. It comes in verse 16 because it says, and Jacob begot Joseph. And, and notice the line. It says, um, Azor begot Zadok. Zadok, and it's one father begetting, another father begetting, and all these begetting. But in verse 16, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And I want you to notice that it doesn't say that Jacob begot Jesus. It says that Jacob begot Joseph, um, and Joseph, Joseph didn't beget Jesus. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. And Joseph, the husband of Mary, it's important to know that he had this legal, um, he had this legal responsibility as, as Mary's husband. And yet, This prophecy all the way from the Old Testament that Jesus, the Messiah, would come from a virgin. Now, in verse 17, I want to show you, as this this all kind of flips, it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Now, this is called a heptatic pattern. There's patterns of seven. Seven, seven, seven. Now, to us, Western mindset, that doesn't really mean anything. We have numbers and we have letters. Um, But to the Hebrew mindset, every letter had a numeric value. And all of this is divisible by seven. It's amazing. I'm not going to go into depth if you you study this. There are theologians and philosophers and, and those that have gone much further than me as scholars to understand this. But it's so perfectly divisible by seven and seven, the number of perfection, the number of God. And you know what it shows us? It shows us that there's no mistake in this genealogy. It's perfect. Jesus's family tree is perfect because it portrays his perfect love, his perfect grace and his perfect mercy. Now, maybe you come from a dysfunctional family like me and all of us, right? We're all sinful. We're all dysfunctional. We all have 
sinful patterns, and it could be our sinful pattern. It could be our kids' sinful patterns. It could be our grandparents, our great-grandparents. And you know what God says? God says, my family tree is open to all of you because I consider you as adoptable. You know what God does, essentially, by including Tamar, by including Ruth? You know what God does by including um, you know, Rahab and Manasseh and David and Abraham and all of these people into his family tree? There are some family members that you may have that you do not want to admit to anyone you're related to. You don't want anyone to know. You don't want that family tree exposed. But when God intentionally includes all of these people, he says, I own them. They're mine. And there's something absolutely beautiful about adoption. It's saying, this child has now become my child. And what God is saying is by placing these names in his family tree is I consider you adoptable and I love you and I'm owning you and you're a part of my family. And that message, it speaks to us today to people that feel like, hey, I can't come to God because my family is so messed up. I can't come to God because of my background and my past and all of these sinful patterns and these things that that I've done. And maybe you feel far away from God and God says, no, this is a, a gospel of grace. See, the other side of this family tree is that Jesus is not just son of man. He came in the incarnation to relate to us, but he's also the son of God. It says in Isaiah 7, 14, prophesied before Jesus had come, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Unless Christ was sinless, he couldn't take away our sin. Because he was sinless, he could say, I will die on their behalf as the sacrifice. I'll take their punishment upon myself because I don't deserve that punishment. Two people that deserve the same punishment, one can't take the punishment for the other because they both deserve that punishment. But Jesus, who has done no wrong, was born of a virgin, so he didn't, he wasn't tainted in this family line. He was sinless. So at the same time, he was son of man, but at the same time, he's son of God. And in verse 18, it says, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, uh, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Betrothal. During this betrothal period, she was already in, engaged to Joseph, and they were considered married legally. When, when a, a couple was betrothed to be married, they were legally married, but there was a waiting period of time. And in that period of time, they wouldn't consummate the marriage. They wouldn't become intimately involved. And so there was an engagement period. And it was during this time that Mary became pregnant. It says that the that what was conceived in her was, was of the Holy Spirit. And, and I think that sometimes in this time of year in December, we look at Jesus in the manger with Mary, and, and we think about what that was like. You, you, you think about um, the pictures. You know, I don't know if Mary really rode a donkey or not, but, but you see the pictures of it, right? Christmas time, you have Joseph and Mary and a donkey. And it doesn't say that she rode a donkey, but maybe she did. But we, we think of it in this way. But I think about what was that like for Mary? You know, there's that song that we sing, Mary, did you know? That when you kiss the babe, you, you kiss the face of God. But yet, think about this, Joseph, did you know? 
What was that like for Joseph? Imagine being Joseph. You're a righteous man. I, I love Joseph. You know, he is, he's a quiet, silent type. You know, may, maybe some of you men are quiet, silent types. None of his words are recorded for us in Scripture. But the thing that I see about Joseph is that he, he's faithful. And what happens is, imagine he's betrothed to Mary, and imagine what that's like for him. Imagine what this would be like for you. You're engaged, and, and your fiancé that you're engaged to, you know, you've never been intimate with her, and she says, I'm pregnant. And then, imagine thinking, who's the father? And she says, it's from God. I, I, I don't know what was going through Joseph's mind at the time. You know, he's a carpenter. I if he had a hammer in his hand, he probably broke some things. You know, maybe threw his hammer. Maybe, you know, what, what did he do? What was this feeling like? And we could read this so glamorized and so sentimental that we forget that these are real people. And in a respectable way, what he desired to do was to put her away privately. He could have made her a public spectacle. Look, she broke the engagement. She, she got pregnant, and, and now she, she broke this bond, but he doesn't. He says, you know, I'll, I'll put you away silently. And, and so in verse 19, Joseph, her husband, being a just man, so notice he's already considered her husband, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And you know, he must have been so thankful that it was an angel that told this to him, because he probably wasn't believing Mary right now. So the angel says, Joseph, it's true. It's true, you could believe her. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus equals God is salvation. Now, when it says he will save his people from their sins, who are his people? Rahab, Manasseh, David, Tamar, Judah. Who are his people? See, his people, they're those that are adopted into the family tree those that are adopted into the family of God, those that by faith say, I want to be a part of this family. And they understand that, that it's, it's this relationship. And so in verse 22, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now I want you to think about evangelism. If you're, if you're a follower of Christ and you love people and you love God and you know what God has done for you, you want with all of your heart for people to know God like you know God. Maybe you were invited here by a friend or a family member or, or someone that has that relationship with God and you're here because they want you to have that relationship with God. And yet in the midst of it, there's this difficulty and crossover sometimes. Like how do I explain to someone something that is so dear to me, so, so personal to me. John Stott says this, in all of evangelism, there is a cultural gulf to bridge. Christians and non-Christians are often widely separated from one, one another by social subcultures and lifestyles, as well as by different values, beliefs, and moral standards. It's why Hollywood can never portray a good Christian because they don't get it. They don't understand, like, it's really weird for them. It's, it's really weird 
for them to write about a Christian because they don't quite understand unless they are Christians. And so there's a, a cultural gap. They don't understand why we believe what we believe. How many of you as Christians, when you became a Christian, your mindset changed? Things that you thought were okay all of a sudden weren't okay. Ways of worshiping God that you thought were okay weren't okay. And then ways that, that God says in his word, all of a sudden you've read his word before and it didn't make sense. And, and all of a sudden the light bulb goes on and it, you see clearly and it makes perfect sense. See, in this gap that we're trying to bridge, it says, um, John Stott said, only an incarnation can span these divides. For an incarnation means entering other people's worlds, their thought world, the worlds of their alienation, their loneliness, and their pain. Moreover, the incarnation led to the cross. Jesus first took our flesh, then he bore our sin. This was a depth of penetration into our world in order to reach us in comparison with which our little attempts to reach people seem amateur and shallow. The cross calls us to a much more radical and costly kind of evangelism than most churches have begun to consider, let alone experience. See, I have nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with, with handing someone a tract. There's nothing wrong with, with sharing the gospel with a stranger. But I'll tell you, unless there's some way for this connection to take place as well, then it leaves it shallow. Now, I understand in some in some contexts, you're not going to be able to see that person for a long time. And the Holy Spirit opens up a door and an opportunity to share with that person. But you know what God wants us to do? He wants us to get involved with their lives. God himself came down. His family tree says, I'm going to get right into the mix of all of the mess that this world has to offer and say, I want to reach you from your context. See, if we're going to bridge that gap and we're going to reach people that don't know the Lord... We have to let them know that there is a God that loves them so much, that loved me so much that I love you so much. You know, as a teacher, I remember they always told us that the students, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, I posted something on Facebook. I posted a picture for Deanna and I for our 21st anniversary, and it was our, our wedding picture. You know, the coolest thing is that Frederick Beyond, whom I've not seen in, 20 something years was a, or less than that because we were already married uh you know like 19 years he commented on my facebook and he said hey teach i remember when you had that picture on your desk and, and i'm still in contact with him there, there's another guy that i used to coach in track and field and he says hey hey teach he started making fun of my hair because i had like the eric estrada hairdo going on but then he said you know what you're one of the best teachers i've ever had and and he thanked me because He's walking with God because I brought him to a promise keepers when he was 17 years old and had an opportunity to introduce him to the God that I love. See, God wants us to know people. He wants us to get involved in their lives. He wants us to say, I love you so much that I care about you. And I'm going to walk with you through the pain and through the difficulty because I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just an employee. I'm not just a neighbor. I'm not just a friend. I'm someone that has a care for your eternal destiny. And don't see me just as this. I want, I want you to see me in a different context. The incarnation, Jesus said, I, I came that you might have life and life more abundantly. He is love with skin on. And guess what? You know what he tells us? He says, now you go and you make disciples. And the only way that they're going to know about me is by what you show them and what you tell them. 
It says then, verse 24, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. And I love this because this is Joseph's epitaph. And maybe you think, well, I'm just a quiet, silent type. I'm a carpenter. You know, I, I just, I'm, I'm a construction guy. I'm a mechanic. I'm, I'm a blue-collar, hard-working type of guy. And I'm not a teacher. I'm not real vocal, not real verbal. But I'll tell you that Joseph, his life, it spoke volumes. And the way that it spoke volumes is that he was faithful. And you know what? He was with Mary amidst all of the rumors. He was with Mary amidst all of the, the slander maybe against them. And he adopted Jesus as his own son. And he raised him, even though he understood that he didn't physically come from him. And again, what is this? It's a picture of the gospel. It's that God adopts us into his family. I couldn't think of a better man to, to be that adoptive dad for Jesus than Joseph. Faithful man. And so we see that Joseph, he, he married Mary. She remained a virgin until after Jesus was born. And then it says later on that they had more kids. Just by the sheer number of names of the brothers that are mentioned in Scripture and the plural that says he had sisters means that there were at least seven siblings plus Mary and Joseph. And Joseph was a carpenter, and they were poor. How do I know they were poor? When they went to the temple to offer sacrifice, it says that they offered the, the turtle dove, which was the offering of a poor person. Imagine a poor person, a poor dad, raising seven kids at least, having a, 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 a small house with nine people in it. And God could have come into our world saying, I will come into the world, but I will be a single you know, child. I will, I will be an only child, and it will be a nice place, and they will be a wealthy family. I could have the best care. But you know what Jesus wanted to do? He wanted to come into this world to mix it up with us and to be related to us. You know, in our family, we have a noisy house. Uh, it, it was great because uh, the, the home that we live in, uh, the Hansons, Michael and Melissa, they actually own the home that we're in. They're missionaries in Mexico, and they were here for the first service. And I got to meet them face-to-face for the first time, and they heard me say this. And they said, our house is the same way. It's not a quiet house. You know, when, when Rebecca came home, she was just looking around, and she's looking for a room to go in where she can get to a place where it's quiet. She goes in this room. Nope, not quiet there. It goes in another room. And the only place that, that's quiet is if you go outside and park in the car. You could close the doors, and it's quiet there. And, and Jesus' home was smaller than our home. And he was mixing it up. Why? Because he loves people. I can't say that I love God and I don't love people. Because the truth isn't in me. If I love God, I will love people. And if I understand how much God loves me and what he paid for me, it causes me, it causes my heart to love people. And you know what? God supernaturally can give us that love for others. It doesn't come naturally. Maybe you think, well, this good friend, and we've been friends for 30 years, that's why we're good friends. No, God supernaturally. That's why when you come into a family of, of believers, and you're outside of that culture, you don't understand. Like, how do you guys get along? Because I'm looking at you, and I'm looking at you. You guys dress different. You, you're different ages. You like different music. And why do you guys hug? You know, what, what are you doing? People don't do that. Well, there's something that God does when he bridges that gap, and he shows us he came to be a part of us, and we can be a part of him. And so, as we close, and we consider this family tree, um, it says in verse 25, um, he did not know her, Joseph did not know Mary, 
um, and that's intimately and physically, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. This is Jesus who came into our world. You know what Jesus' family tree is like? There's room for Rahab and Tamar and Ruth and Bathsheba and Abraham and David and Manasseh and Judah. And Joseph and, and Mary, they remind us there's, there's good parts of Jesus' family. Joseph and Mary, they're like, they're the people of the family tree that you want to introduce everyone to. Oh, this is my you know, cousin or this is my, my sister. Or, but you know what? God says you're all invited. And this morning, that invitation is to each one of you. Again, in the book of Genesis was the book of generations of Adam. When I went back to the Philippines uh, a couple of years ago, I went into one of my cousin's homes. And he, he said, and he's a, he's a born-again believer. He's a follower of Christ. He said, Matt, I want to show you this book. And it's a book that he's been compiling, looking for our, our genealogical record, our, our family tree. And going back about four generations ago, there's a journal entry. And he said, I want you to read this journal entry. And it says, I am a follower of Christ. And I am praying, as far as I know, and this is like four generations in this book, uh, it said, as far as I know, I'm the only believer in my family. But I'm praying for my kids and my grandkids and those after me that they would also follow Christ. So then you go a little bit farther down this family tree, and, and, and a cousin, a distant cousin from my dad, wrote a journal entry and said, I have a cousin in the United States, and Rick has four children, and there's hope because I hear that some of them are believers and followers of Christ. And I read that, and you know what it reminds me? The curse, it stops. See, the cross, it says, Cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. And when Jesus died for us, and he took my sin and your sin upon himself, what he says is, by doing that, that curse, it could stop. And maybe you think, man, I have messed up my whole life. 50, 60, 70 years of rebellion and, and heartache and pain and just, just a, a trail. Maybe in your own life you could say there's a trail of broken relationships, of kids that don't talk to me and grandkids that don't talk to me and brothers and sisters that don't talk to me. You could look at that and you could say it stops here. And if you don't have children, you could say it starts here. This is where it starts. And if you don't have kids, maybe it's a friend and to that friend, you could share with them the love of Christ. And guess what? That person can now be a part of the family of God. And so this morning, I want to close with this invitation. If any of you have never been adopted into the family of God, you know what it takes? It takes a heart that says, I believe. It takes a heart to say, I receive. It's not about being good. It's not about going and living a religious life and following all these rules and laws. It's about realizing what Jesus has done for us and say, I want to be a part of that family. And with open arms, there's enough room. With open arms, Jesus says, behold, I go and I prepare a place for you that where I am, you will be also. If you want to be a part of that family this morning, I'm going to pray. And if you pray this prayer by faith, it's not a magic formula. It's your heart saying, God, I believe I want to be a part of that family. You can be adopted in that family. I'm also going to pray a prayer because sometimes in family, as you know, we could have a falling out in family. And sometimes in family as followers of Christ, maybe in struggle, maybe because we've been hurt by someone, maybe a believer has hurt us. 
Or maybe it's just us in rebellion. We've been far from God. And this morning, it was the hardest thing for you to come. You're thinking, it's raining. Good, I have an excuse. But somehow the Holy Spirit kept knocking on your heart, and he said, I need to come. And you know what God is saying to you? He's saying, I'm glad you're here. You're a part of the family. Welcome home. And so I'm going to pray. And by faith, if you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is your opportunity. It's your opportunity to say, God, I want to be a part of that family. And if you've been far from God, it's an opportunity to say, God, I'm here. Thank you that I'm back. Please receive me back. And you know what he says? I've been looking for you. I'm the one that's drawn you here. So let's pray. Father, we just want to pause and let that rest. We want to pause and consider what it is when we can call you Father. Lord, some of us have had dads on this earth, physical fathers that really weren't much of fathers at all. And yet, Lord, you become the father to the fatherless. Some of us have had great examples of fathers, and yet, Lord, we know that our dads are fallen, they're sinful, and we need a savior because our family tree is is tainted with sin. So, Lord, we come to you, and we ask that you would receive us into your family, that you would forgive us for our sins. And we want to walk with you. We want to follow Christ. Lord, that invitation that is offered to us, we, we say yes. We, we just right now say yes. I, I accept that invitation. And Lord, please come into my life and change me. Forgive me for my sin. And Jesus, thank you for dying for me. And then, Father, for those that have maybe walked from afar off, Lord, uh, a part of the family but really haven't been present, um, haven't been actively pursuing that relationship with you, this morning I pray, Lord, that they would be able to come and say, Lord, thank you that you are pursuing me. Lord, I'm, I'm back. Please forgive me. Lord, I want to walk with you. And I thank you that there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And then, Father, as a family of God, as those that are, are followers of Christ, Lord, we just thank you for the family that you have adopted us into. Lord, it is a wonderful family. Lord, it is uh, dysfunctional, this side of heaven. But, God, we are looking forward to the time that we are with you, physically, in person. Lord, for now, it is a blessing that we could sing, we could worship you, that we could... We could have fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, if there's anyone that feels like they're on the outskirts, on the outside looking in, Lord, help us to to love them, help us to reach out to them. But Lord, if we're those ones that are on the outside, we, we willingly come. And Lord, we pray that you would show us those that we could reach out to as well. So we thank you, Lord. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Let's worship the Lord.